couple of uh, quick announcements. I forgot to mention that, that uh, the women's prayer breakfast is coming up this Saturday morning. And so uh, if my wife knew that I forgot to mention that, I would be in trouble. But um, I'm letting you know that the prayer breakfast is coming up this, this Saturday morning. And then also on Saturday morning, um, my daughter and my future son-in-law is going to be getting married, Laura and Dan over here. And so just a small little wedding down in, down in Branson. It's going to be just kind of family, but it's just an awesome thing. So blessed to have Dan be a part of our family and... and to finally get rid of Laura. No. <laughs> oh, I love my little girl. You know that's true. Now she's Dan's problem. <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, <laughs> I get in trouble for my wife, I'm going to get in trouble for my, my daughter. If you have your Bibles, let's get into God's Word quickly here. Um, Matthew chapter 21. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat to follow along with us. We're going to look at verse 23 and we're going to look at three parables. It's going to take us all the way through chapter 22, verse 14. So a big chunk of scripture this morning. It's a, it's a very stern section of the gospel of Matthew. And that's why I want to kind of move it at a higher speed than we normally would, because we're in a section of scripture known as the king's rejection. It's the last week of Christ's ministry on the earth leading up to his crucifixion. Now, we'll slow down when we get to chapter 23 and 24 and 25. Obviously, we'll slow down. But this morning, as I said, we're going to get a big chunk of Scripture here. Chapter 21, starting in verse 23. Let's start by way of introduction and read verse 23 to verse 27. Then we'll pray. Starting verse 23. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, But what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you, by what authority I do these things. He says, The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then you do not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We don't know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The title of my message this morning is, Whose authority do you have? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to be in your word and to know, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. Father, we want to remember this morning the shooting victims, both shootings, Lord, that has taken place, the one this morning at 1 a.m. And, and the one in Texas, Lord, that you would just comfort the grieving families, Lord, that through the tragedies that's going on, Lord, in our country, Lord, that, uh, Lord, that you would spark revival in our country, especially in the young people, Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would again comfort those that are mourning. Lord, we pray uh, your blessing upon our time together as we dig into your word. We know, Lord, that you have something to say to all of us. We pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to commit their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, they're not saved, would you especially touch their heart today? We thank you for our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
when Christian Herder was governor of Massachusetts, he was running for her second term in office. And one day after a really busy morning uh, chasing votes, he, he had the lunch and he arrives at a church who was holding a barbecue on, on his behalf. It was late in the afternoon and, and the governor was famished. And so he's, he's moving down the line and, and he, you know, the serving line. He held out his plate to the woman who's passing out the chicken and she put one piece of chicken on his plate. Then she turned to the next person and put on, on that person's plate. And uh, the governor says, excuse me, um, um, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? And she says, sorry, uh, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But I'm really hungry, the governor said. Sorry, the woman said, only one to a customer. Now, the governor, who was a, you know, he was a, a modest and unassuming man, but he decided that, you know, this time he's really hungry. He's going to throw a little of his weight around. And so he says, well, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And the woman says, well, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Authority. Chicken lady had all the authority. You know, when God created the universe, he established a principle to govern it. The principle of authority. God himself is the highest authority. Under God, he created his archangels, and under the archangels were many other angels, and then he created man all under God's authority. The word authority means to write, the right to rule and the right to be obeyed. All authority belongs to God because He is the creator of all things. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. And then God created the first man, Adam. He placed him in the Garden of Eden and then God created a wife for Adam and named her Eve. And God's arrangement was that Eve was to be in, in, in subject to Adam, that Adam should be in subject to God himself. Well, then Satan comes along and tempts Eve to rebel against God's authority. She does. And then when Adam finds out and saw what Eve has done, and he took the forbidden fruit and ate it as well. The Bible says that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He, he just went for it. He chose to disobey God's authority. Adam chose to follow Satan in his rebellion against God. And his heart, he says, I'll do what I want. And through the rebellion of Adam against God's authority over his life, sin entered the world. And Adam passed on that, his rebellious nature onto his children and to the whole world. And then on, rebellion against God's authority it became a principle in the heart of man. But God, since the very beginning, has sought to redeem mankind, to show to man that living under God's authority is the only life to live, rather than in rebellion. And this is where we come to our text this morning, as we will see a history of God's people rebelling against God's authority. You see, we left off last week with the final week of our Lord before the cross. You know, it's... it's, Monday morning now. You know, it's funny that in the 60s, the mamas and the papas had a hit song called Monday, Monday. For those of you that might be my age or a little bit older. Some of the lyrics went, On Monday morning you gave me no warning of what it would be that Monday evening you would leave and not take me. Every other day, every other day of the day of the week is fine, but whenever Monday comes, whenever Monday comes, you can find me crying all the time. Monday, Monday couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be here with me. Now, the, the writer of the song must have had a nice weekend with his girlfriend, but come Monday, she's gone. She's out of there. And it's interesting to me how that the words of that song parallel Jesus' last Monday, that last week. I mean, he'd been warmly embraced on Sunday. 
You know, he, he came in on the, on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem and the, the cheers of the crowd, Hosanna, save now glory in the highest. But then Monday morning, the tide has changed. The Jewish leaders are trying to, to trap him up and, 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 and discredit him. The temple is filled with tension. Jesus shows up and he sees the money changers there and, and he starts turning over the tables and driving these guys out of there. And then as he's, he's, he's there in the temple, the, 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 the lame and the blind come to him and he, and he heals them all. He leaves the temple. He sees the fig tree. We read that Jesus was hungry. He turns to find fruit on it, sees nothing, and then says, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away, blew the disciples' minds then Jesus taught a whole lesson on faith and doubting. And we looked at last week how to handle anger and the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Well, now it's Tuesday morning. I guess you can call this Goodbye Ruby Tuesday. I don't know, but it's Tuesday. Jesus is back at the temple. Same place on Monday that he drove out all the, all the money changers. And we come to verse 23. And Jesus now has another confrontation with these guys. They didn't forget what he did the day before. They're still pretty angry over the whole table-turning incident. So what happens next is these chief priests, these religious rulers, the elders of the people come to Jesus, and in verse 23, they question his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, they really were into that. You know, oh, I got the authority. You know, they, had, they wanted everyone to know that they were in charge. They didn't care at all that Jesus was, in fact, the true Son of God. They didn't care that He healed people. They didn't care that He performed miracles. All they cared about was the authority. And they're asking Jesus, well, well, where do you get the authority? They didn't think Jesus had this authority. Who gave you the authority to shut down our business? Who gave you the authority to turn over our tables and, and drive us out of here? But notice that they didn't question what He was doing. Because <laughs> they knew in their hearts... What he was doing was right. They shouldn't have been having the money changes there in the temple. Rather, they questioned whether or not he had the authority to do it. And Jesus answers the question of authority by raising a question of his own. He says in verse 25, tell me this. The baptism of John, was it from, where was it from? From heaven or from men? You know, you can just picture, you know, the scene and they all kind of huddle together. I don't know if we say this, he's going to say this. If we say this, he's going to say that. Uh, we can't tell you. We don't know. Yeah, they knew. They certainly knew. But they, if they said it was of God, then Jesus would say, well, then why didn't you believe him? And if they said, and, you know, because John had said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But if they said it's not from God, then they would, you know, the people would revolt because they believed that John was a prophet. So they just say, say, we don't know. And so they knew all right. They just didn't want to say. They were in a pickle. They were, you know, your, our modern day politicians trying to get out of it. They didn't want to speak the truth. And so uh, Jesus here turns it all around on them and shows that this rejection of authority goes all the way back to the beginning. And he gives them really a history of Israel. And we're going to see that they have rejected the authority of the Father, that they have rejected the authority of the Son, and they have rejected the authority of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that all within these three parables. And these are our three notes or three points if you're taking notes, the authority of the Father, the, the rejecting of the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Point number one, rejecting the authority of the Father. And we look at, the, it's called the parable of the two sons. Look at verses 28 through 31. But what do you think? 
Man has two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, The first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. Whoa. I mean, they hear that and they go, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. I mean, uh, here they were looking for Jesus' authority and, and, and uh, you know, when it comes to authority, Jesus says, man, you rejected the authority of the Father. Over and over again. And because of that, Jesus says, tax collectors and, and harlots or prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you. How is that possible? Look at verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. See, Jesus here is likening the first son in the parable to the tax collectors, the harlots. And the father said to the first son, go into the vineyard and work. And the son said, no. But then they repented and then went and, and worked. Then the second son, the father said, son, go into the vineyard and work. And the son said, sure, I'll go. And then he didn't go. Sounds like some of our kids today, you know. Well, then Jesus asked them, which one of the two sons submitted to doing the will of the father? Notice the emphasis there, though, is on doing the will of the father. And their answer, in their answer, they condemn themselves because they say the first son. Jesus said, so likewise the tax collectors and the sinners, the harlots are going to come into the kingdom before you guys because they were doing the will of the the Father, which is repentance and belief. See, he's applying this whole parable to them. They were religious. They had the profession on the outside, but they didn't have true obedience. Jesus is teaching us that it's more than just a profession of faith. A profession of faith does not constitute sonship or salvation. Our sonship is tested by our obedience. In other words, it's not good enough just to say, oh, I'm a child of God. It's not just saying we're obeying God, but it's it's actually doing the will of God. Now, we certainly know that no one is saved by our works. The Bible is very clear on that point. But good works are an indication that you are saved. That you manifest true faith in your life. So works or obedience is a fruit of a genuine saving faith. But the danger is we can become like the religious rulers, like, like the Pharisees. Well, we have a profession. Oh, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, not just any church. I go to Calvary Chapel. And I have a Bible. And I read. And I worship God. And I'm a Christian. And I love Jesus. Really? Yeah, that's right. Well, do you obey Jesus? Are you keeping His commandments? Are you living under the authority of the Father in heaven and His word that He has given to us? Because if you're not, then you really need to examine your life to find out if you truly know Him or not. See, there's such a disconnect today between those who profess to follow Jesus and those who truly live what they profess. Here the Lord is saying that the one son who said, I won't do what you ask, but then he did, and another son who said, Dad, I'll do it, and did nothing. I mean, again, the religious rulers, outwardly, I mean, show that they're approving of John's message, but their hearts, in their hearts, they never truly repented. But then there are the sinners, the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors that... That, that, you know, the religious rulers condemned. So they'll never make it into the kingdom of God. And Jesus said they received the message. They repented and they believed. You know, when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be blown away by the people that are there. We're going to see people go, I can't believe you're here. 
prostitutes in heaven, drug addicts in heaven, murderers in heaven, robbers, all kind of evildoers. I could go on and on with name every kind of sinful and evil deed imaginable to man. And, and there's going to be people in heaven who committed those crimes and made it to heaven because they repented. They did the will of the Father. And then we are going to be blown away by the people that aren't there. Man, where is so-and-so? People that went to church all the time. People who pray. People who, who never really had a heart change. I think we're going to be surprised at, at pastors who are not going to be there. Those people we think that are so so spiritual and so holy, some of those people won't make it to heaven. Why? Because they had a profession, but they didn't really possess Jesus Christ. I think especially on a morning like today when we have communion, it's really a great time for us to examine our hearts and say, Lord, which son am I? Have I truly repented or am I just going through the motions? No, the word repent means to, to change one's mind, to stop the direction you're going and turn and go the other direction. A changed mind results in a changed direction. It's a U-turn for Christ. That's a, that's a true repentance. Those are the people that we'll see in heaven. And again, we know that there will be surprises in heaven because remember back in chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Then if you recall, Jesus gave that whole parable on the, the uh, house builders. You know, the wise man built his house in the rock when the storms came. The house stood. The foolish man built his house in the sand when the storm came. It washed it all away. And he said, so everyone that hears these things of mine and does them, is like the wise man. And does them. It, it comes back to obedience. Obedience is the evidence of true salvation. But there's something else we learn from this parable of the two sons. We also learn that no matter how sinful our past was, if we repent and we trust in Jesus Christ, He will save us. Praise God for that. Verse 32 says that Jesus said, the tax collectors and the harlots enter the kingdom of God. How's that? Through the faith in Jesus Christ. Can't save myself. You can't save yourself. Yeah, I've lived a sinful life. The Bible says that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. But you take the hand of Jesus, who said, whoever so will can come and enter into the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter how sinful your past is. There may be someone here this morning that may feel that they are the most sinful out of all of us. Please don't raise your hand. <laughs> but maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel as though you, you've sinned so much that, that God won't forgive you. That simply is not true. 1 John 1, nine. if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. We, now, we know Jesus, after showing that they have rejected the authority of the Father, he now gives the religious rulers a second parable. And our point number two, we're going to see the rejection of the Son. Starting in verse 33, we have the, the parable of the vine dressers, or they call it the parable of the wicked householders, or they call it the parable of the land renters. It goes by different names. Still the same day, Tuesday, the same people that Jesus is speaking to, response to what authority Jesus had to cleanse the temple. Look at verse 33 all the way down to verse 46. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and sent a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and, and went into a far country. 
Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. The last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now Jesus turned to the religious rulers and he asked them, verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Then Jesus nails it. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes, quoting Psalm 118. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, he says, and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. <laughs> Duh! I think he's speaking about us. They finally get the point. But verse 46, But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Oh, let's get him! Oh, we can't get him because the people like him. Oh, I don't know. Now this really is a, a graphic parable. Jesus is describing God the Father as a landowner. And he rented out his vineyard. Now the one who took charge over the vineyard is a picture of the nation of Israel. The vineyard is the nation of Israel. And the wicked vine dressers are the religious leaders of the nation. In fact, not right now, but if you have a chance to look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 3 to about 7, we have a picture of Israel as a grape vineyard. God planted this vineyard. He put a hedge around it, put a watchtower in it. Isaiah 5 tells us that he looked, went to it to find fruit from the nation of Israel, but instead there were thorns and thistles and, and wild weeds growing up, but no fruit that Israel brought to God. So here Jesus is likening the nation of Israel to this vineyard, and the vine dressers are likening to these spiritual leaders he's talking to. Verse 34, we see that God sent them his prophets, his servants. They're referred to in the parable as servants. And think about that. God did send Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, prophets of God. And what did they do to the prophets? Verse 35, they beat one, killed one, stoned another. Tradition says Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit. God sent to the nation prophets, you know, these people to warn them to turn from their sin and turn back to God. But then in verse 36, we read, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And then finally, verse 37, an amazing verse, the last of all, he sent his son to them. Now think about this picture. If you had a house that you were renting to someone and you had a, a, you know, one of your employees go to pick up the rent from the house. He goes over there, they see him, they beat him up. So you go, man, that's not good. I need to send someone else. So they send another employee. They beat him up almost to the point of death. So he sent a, a third guy and they actually killed him. And you do this over and over and over again. Do you think it'd be a good idea to send your son? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, what person in their right mind would, would send his one child to go collect rent from people like that? What an amazing God that we have for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Yeah, it's hard for us to understand or comprehend how God could send his only begotten Son other than what the Bible says, that God so loved you. God so loved me. And you put John 3.16 there next to verse 37 and you see and you understand the meaning of the parable Then the last of all he sent his son to them. Now let me make a few things, a few footnotes about this parable before we move on. Number one, this is showing us that Jesus is unique. He's not like the other servants. He's not like the other, other prophets that were sent. You know, a lot of people like to put Jesus in a group of prophets. Well, he was a good man. He was a good uh, prophet, just like Moses and, and, and Elijah, Jeremiah. And, 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 you know, no. He's God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. He's unique. And secondly, what we notice here also is Jesus is God's last word to man. God is speaking. He's speaking to His Son, Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And if you reject Jesus Christ, you're rejecting God's word to you. And I might add God's last word to you. Hebrews 1, it says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, which we just read about. He says, has in his last days spoken to us by his son. So if you don't listen to Jesus, God has nothing more to say to you. There's going to be no future revelations Nothing more added to God's word. No future Son of God coming back to walk on this earth again and, and give us another chance. He gave us, uh, came and died once and for all for the sins of the world. God has spoken to His Son to us. If you do not hear the Son, you do not hear God. First John 5.11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has a Son has life. He who is not the Son has not life. So the question we need to ask is, have you listened to Jesus? Have you responded to Him? Have you believed in Jesus? Is God's last word to you? I mean, He is God's last word to you. Have you responded? Now Jesus goes on in this parable, and He turns to the religious rulers at this time, and, and, and they're questioning His authority, and He says, now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will He do to those vine dressers? And it's great, because... Here, they're condemning themselves without even knowing it. At verse 41, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. And Jesus is going, do you see what I'm talking about here? I mean, that's exactly what God would do. God would destroy Israel. We know that Israel would be temporarily set aside. Why? So that the Gentiles can come into and be saved. That's what the book of Romans tells us in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Israel's uh, rejection, election, and then restoration after, after the Gentiles come to faith. And so he says here in verse 41 that he will lease his vineyards to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. He's referring to us, the Gentiles, the church. That Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we see here that Jesus quotes in verse 22 and 23, Psalm 118, where he says, He's the stone that the builders rejected and has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's pointing to the fact that he is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Now, I'm not a builder. 
I've never built walls before, but, but uh, I know that if you're building with, with, with blocks and a brick like that, it's really important that that first stone, that foundation stone, is plumb. Everything is square right where it should be. Otherwise, you get the wall going up, it's all going to be cattywampus. You know, it's not going to be square. So, it's the cornerstone that sets the whole building that's the most important. And Jesus is saying, you've rejected me, the chief cornerstone. I could be your Savior, your Messiah. They rejected his authority. But he also shows that he is a salvation stone as well because he says in verse 44, and whoever falls on this stone, now Jesus is referring to himself again, remember, he says whoever falls on this stone will be broken. In other words, you'll be saved. In his first coming, if you believe upon him with a broken, repentant heart, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm broken before you, forgive me. You'll be saved. But verse 44, on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That's the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes in judgment. Read Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. It speaks of Daniel seeing a stone coming down out of heaven. It was cut without hands out of the mountain and it smote this image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen of all these Gentile nations leading up to the second coming of Christ. And the stone grew very large and representing the kingdom of God. Again, the second coming of Christ. So, so we have a choice to make. Fall on Christ. Be broken. Be saved. Or Christ one day will fall upon you and he will come in judgment. Now notice verse 45. There is a power of conscience in these men because it says they perceive that Jesus spoke of them. <laughs> Finally you go, duh. Alright. Uh, now a lot of times People will come to church on Sunday and they'll say to me, Pastor, you were speaking right to my heart. Did you have a bugging device in my home last night? How did you know that's what I needed to hear? How did you know what's going on? Well, we have an Alexa in your home and we hear it through Alexa and, and it goes right into my office and I just take notes during the week. But, you know, people will sit, sit week after week and they think that somehow I know what's going on in their lives and, and think that I know, you know, why they're here and what, what they're doing. Just so you know, I don't know. I, I don't. But the one who sees everything, the one who knows everything, the one who's ever present, God, the Holy Spirit, knows. And it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to your heart through the message that is given. But people will say, oh, you were speaking right to me. Great. But that's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Now you have a choice. Are you going to listen and obey and do something about it? Yeah, I think people come every week to churches all over to hear the word and they leave and say, well, I perceive that God was speaking to me. But they do nothing about it. Just like these religious leaders, they perceive that Jesus was speaking to them, but they did nothing. The Bible says, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. If God is convicting you of something, if He's showing you something and you perceive in a sermon, in this sermon, that God is speaking to you, then, then listen, repent, get saved, get right, do what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. Don't just walk away going, yeah, He was speaking to me. Great. <laughs> get right with God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Now we come to chapter 22, and this is our third and final point. It opens with the third and final parable we're going to look at that the religious leaders not only rejected the authority of the father in the parable of the two sons, that not only rejected the authority of the son in the parable of the vine dressers, but number three, they rejected the authority of the Holy Spirit. And in it we have the parable of the marriage feast. Again, look at verse 1 now of chapter 22. 
Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So God the Father is sending out his Holy, the Holy Spirit to woo a bride for his, his son. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to call people to the wedding, to call people to Christ, to win a bride for Jesus Christ. We as the church are considered the bride of Christ. As you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of the church, you become the bride of Christ. So who does God call first? Well, salvation, the Bible says in Romans 1.16, is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. But we read in verse 3 that they were not willing to come. Verse 4 says, And again he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now who wouldn't want to come to a wedding like this? I mean, they got the fatted cattle that are killed. They got oxen there. I mean, they got a big barbecue going on. They probably had beef brisket and pulled chicken and burnt ends. Those burnt ends, you know, a whole hog. Have you been a whole hog? Man, that place is like, they're so good. Getting you hungry. We're leaving right now, Pastor. Get done already. Best barbecue. They wouldn't have pulled pork here, but they'd have chicken and brisket here. And uh, you go... Think about that one for a minute. <laughs> but notice in verse 5. So, so the invitation comes out. But they made light of it. Same thing that happens today. You share the gospel. Oh, people make light of it. It says, and they, they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. But the rest, in verse 6, the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Again, we're seeing Israel's rejection of God's invitation through the Holy Spirit. They killed his messengers, including the Lord Jesus himself. And then verse 7. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now undoubtedly this refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by Titus the Roman. And then look at verses 8 through 14. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see their guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's a whole message we can give on this parable. But let me just point out a few things here. The meaning behind the parable. Again, it's a picture of the nation of Israel who was set aside and despised. And the despised Gentiles are now the guests seated at, the, at God's table. So the parable is that God had made a wedding feast for his son. The King is God the Father. The Son is Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is, going, is calling those to come. But just as the Jews rejected the authority of the Father and the Son, they rejected the authority of the Holy Spirit. They rejected the invitation to come to faith in Christ. They rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Even worse, they made light of it and was just preoccupied with other things. So the King says, well, then go to the highways and the byways and as many as you find and invite to the wedding. 
And they went out and, and they got the good, the bad, and the ugly. They all came in and, and, and the wedding was, was furnished with guests, which included, by the way, tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes. But the Jews, the religious leaders, they're shut up. They missed the joy of the wedding feast. The Jews, that they missed the Messiah, God's invitation to them for them to come and dine. So the invitation goes to the Gentiles. See, with all of these three parables, we see a spiritual history of Israel. Again, Israel disobeyed the father in the parable of the two sons, crucified the son, the parable of the vineyard, and resisted the Holy Spirit, the parable of the marriage feast. And today, Israel is still set aside. And the blessings of Christ have been given to the church until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. Romans 11.25 tells us, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wiser in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. You see, their rejection is only partial. There are some Jews yesterday that believe and, and are part of the church. And also their rejection is only temporary. Blindness in part has happened to the Jews. Only in part, only temporary, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. When the church is complete, when that last Gentile gets saved, the rapture of the church is going to take place. Then God will once again deal with the nation of Israel during what's called the time of Jacob's trouble, what we know is a great tribulation period. So let me say this to you this morning. If you are that last Gentile that's not saved, would you please get saved so we can get out of here already and get home to be with Jesus? Let me make a few more applications from this final parable and then we'll close and enter into a time of communion. Number one, what we see here is the call to salvation is a call to a joyous wedding feast. A joyous wedding feast. Now, somehow people get the idea, well, if I become a Christian, then it's, it's, I'm just not going to have any fun anymore. I'm just going to, you know, say goodbye to having fun and I've got to wipe that smile off my face. I'm a Christian now. Christians can't have fun. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. What a joy it is to be a child of God. What a feast. Every day I can sit at the table of the Lord and, 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 and just eat of His love and drink of His joy and fellowship with the King. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to a wedding of the king's son, the prince, and enjoy the spread that the king could provide? Have you ever gone to a wedding? And it's like at that time of the day when you get to the reception and you're kind of really hungry and all they have is peanuts. Little, little snacks and you go, oh man, I was really hoping to have some really good food at this wedding. What a waste of time. No, I don't say. <laughs> I bet you thought that. Some of you probably thought that. You know, no, I've never done that. I know you have. But then you go to a wedding, and man, there's a spread. And you're going, oh man, this is great. The best food ever. You really enjoy that wedding. Listen, the Christian life is a feast. It's not a funeral. I mean, you, you think that, that some Christians, you, you look at them, you think, man, it's just like one big funeral. And you drive by some of these churches, and as the people are walking out, you go, did someone just die in there? Or, or you see them almost running out of church, like rats fleeing a, a sinking ship. You think, what, what's going on in there? Is it that bad? Listen, when the king calls us to come to him, he calls us to a feast, a celebration. The Christian life is to be a, a joyful life. But know this, on the flip side of that, to reject the invitation of the wedding feast, is to live an empty life. A, a life without joy or peace, to, to go hungry and you go thirsty. You never know the fellowship of the saints or the joy of our king. 
And the last thing I want to point out about this parable is, number two, is it's a call to salvation. It's a call to all. In verse 9 of chapter 22, it says, Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Go into the uttermost parts of the earth. Urbana, Missouri. You know, maybe that place. I don't know if you're from Urbana. Sorry about that. Billings, Missouri. You know. Go to East St. Louis. Go to downtown Chicago. I mean, some of those places are the places we avoid or want to avoid or just drive through during the day because you don't want to drive through at night and you certainly don't want to make eye contact with anyone as you're driving through yet. We need to, to bring the gospel there. Go to the highways and the byways. Go to the parts of Springfield that you never go to share the gospel. Go downtown to the Park Square Friday nights. Invite people to come to Jesus. Man, we're going to, we're, we're, Heading towards moving our church closer to downtown so we can reach more people for Christ. That, that's the hope. Why? Because there's a feast available to them. The food is all laid out. Jesus paid the price for our sins. So come if you're hungry for more in life. Come if you're thirsty and you need to be satisfied. Come to the one who is calling you to come. And come just as you are and know that the Father is ready to love and to receive and the Son is ready to pardon and to cleanse and the Holy Spirit is ready to fill and to sanctify and to renew. All you need to do is come. But sadly, many reject the invitation, sad to say, as in this parable, they were preoccupied with things that just didn't matter. Not necessarily sinful things either. Verse 5 says, Some went their ways, to one to his own farm, another to his business. Ah, yeah, the gospel. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, going to work day in and day out, living in emptiness, never once seeking to find fulfillment. They're lost. Finally, one last thing. We read in verse 11 that the master comes in and finds a guy who doesn't have on the wedding garment. And he says, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? See, they would actually provide wedding garments at the feast so that everyone would be dressed properly. We read in verse 12, he was speechless and the king said to the servants, bind him, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. Now that's pretty obvious. He's speaking about eternal judgment. He's speaking about hell. You think, wow, I thought it was come as you are. Yeah, it is. Come to Christ just as you are. And he'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you and he'll close you in his righteousness. You don't need to clean up your life first. You just come to him as you are. But then once you're saved... You're covered by the blood of Jesus. It's no longer you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that wedding garment speaks of the righteousness of Christ, which is absolutely essential for salvation. And it's applied to all those who believe. But you see, this guy was a professor. He professed with his mouth, but not with his heart. There are are a lot of people. You know, I mean, they, they, they go to church week after week, but they don't have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And they sit in the pews week after week and sing the songs, but they're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which only comes by faith in Christ alone. In fact, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not going to get you into heaven. You need to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And let me say this. If you're here this morning and you don't have that wedding garment on that God would give to you by having faith in Jesus Christ, there's coming a day of reckoning. Jesus the King will say, bind hand, bind him, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. And notice something else here. The man without the proper attire, without the righteousness of Christ, he was speechless. Maybe you hear this nowadays. People say, well, I don't, I don't need to receive Christ. When I die and I stand before God, you know, I'm just going to take my chances. I'll plead my case. I'll let him know, you know, hey, you know what, when we, we'll talk it all out. 
Let me tell you, on the authority of the word of God, you will be speechless. It'll be too late. Here our Lord said that this fellow without the wedding garment on was speech. He had nothing to say. See, this coming a judgment day when everything will be open and naked before the eyes of the Lord. There'll be no excuses. And even if you try to get off an excuse, well, I never heard the gospel. God will say, roll him, Gabriel. August, you know, 4, 2019, Calvary Chapel, Springfield. But there you are sitting there and you're listening to that guy talk and he just shared the gospel. And what did you do? You rejected it. So you can't sneak into the wedding feast without the garment on. God will see you and he will judge you. No amount of good works that you do is going to bring salvation. It's only faith in Christ alone. See, if you're born again today, you've had your sins forgiven. You have eternal life. You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And listen to what Isaiah 61.10 says. I love this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Oh, I love that. If you're a believer, that's how we look. We have the righteousness of Christ that he has provided for us. And if not, the invitation has gone out. Gone out. You have to come, though, on the king's terms. The Jews, they rejected the authority of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. They refused to surrender their hearts and life to Jesus Christ. And we have to ask ourselves the same thing. Am I living under God's authority in my life, or am I living under my own authority? If I completely surrendered my heart and life to Him, or am I still kind of running my own life? God, you have this area of my life, but I'm, I'm in control of everything else. Notice in verse 14, Jesus says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Everyone is called to the wedding feast. And if you answer that call, if you've chosen to come to Him, if you repented of your sin, Jesus will come into your life. And what you find is that you've been chosen all along. That's how it works. Pretty simple. But you see, it's not the person who sits in the pew or is dipped in the water who's saved, but it's the one who says, Lord, I need you. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Lord, come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. If you've never done that, I encourage you before we even enter into this time of communion in just a moment, give your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender to Him. Surrender the authority of your life over to Christ, the one who went to the cross, died for your sins, rose again on the third day, and sits at the right hand of the Father to give intercession for us. For those of us that have made that commitment to Christ, We've given up our own authority. So, Lord, I want you to have authority over my life. I'm surrendering my life to you. Let me say this. It's real easy to grab back that authority in our own lives. It's really easy to go back to start living for ourselves and, and so I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do that. And maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to your hearts this morning. And you're going, I, I perceive that God is speaking to me. Listen, if you've heard the voice, harden not your heart. Surrender your life afresh to Him today. Say, Lord, I recognize what I've done and, and, and I need to get back the authority of you in my life. And God will hear that prayer and He'll restore that relationship with you and Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this time this morning. Thank You for these parables, Lord, because they teach all of us just such a great lesson. That if we hear Your voice, we're not to harden our hearts, but we're to respond. And what great joy comes to those that respond to the message of the gospel. 
Lord, the Christian life is so joyous. Lord, we have hope. We have peace. We have joy. And Father, I pray for all of us this morning, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, first and foremost, we pray, Father, that they would commit their lives to you. That they would stop trying to live their lives on their own, Lord, but they would see that life is empty without you. They would turn from their sin and turn to you this morning. But for those of us that are believers, Lord, maybe there's some areas in our lives that we've taken back from you. Lord, you can have Sunday morning, but Monday through Friday, that's mine. Or Lord, you can have, you know, my home, and you have my free time, but but Lord, my work, that's mine. Or my free time is mine. Whatever, Lord. Maybe there's a point where we need to say, Lord, I'm giving it back to you. My whole life afresh to you. You are uh, the authority over my life. What a great time, Lord, as we look at communion and the cross that you did for us. That we can surrender afresh to you. Bless this time of communion now we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.